you for returning to part two of the Jandamara story. Today we're going to continue the story from right where we left off in that last episode. We had set the scene a bit about the background to the colonisation occurring in the Kimberley, and we talked about Jandamara's background. We took a break just as the white stockman Richardson, Jandamara's friend, had joined the police force. He was, with the help of Jandamara, now regularly rounding up and incarcerating Jandamara's people. Lately, he had captured Alamara, Jandamara's respected tutor, and this put Jandamara in a very uncomfortable situation, so tensions were rising. If you have not listened to that previous episode, Jandamara Part 1, it will be very important that you go back there and listen to that one first, so that all the following information will make sense. If you've already listened to Part 1, let's take up immediately where we left off earlier. Stay tuned at the end for my latest potty recommendation. And don't forget to go to the Australian Histories podcast website for the reference information, links and images related to this story. It's hard to know how strategic Jandamara's loyalty to Richardson actually was. Certainly, he's put himself in harm's way to protect Richardson when necessary, and he often seemed to be on board with rounding up and incarcerating his own countrymen. But Peterson wonders if Chandamara was not already yielding to Alamara's influence then, in September of 1894, possibly even planning to assist with a bigger and better resistance. Alamara was a highly respected lawman and elder with cattle now being driven into even their remaining remote Bunaba lands, it was clear they could no longer allow the colonisation to continue if they were to survive themselves. Alamara, a prison escapee and already a wanted man, would likely have been preparing to bring together warriors to defend and hold what was left of their land. In October, Richardson, with Jandamara's help, captured and held a number of Bunaba men and women. Alamara was said to be nearby, and Richardson was keen to add him to their prisoner hall, and in the following days he was successful in recapturing Alamara. Richardson then held all 17 in chains for a week before making plans to walk them across to Derby. By holding them for seven days prior, he could increase his income. Despite the appalling conditions, there was apparently an extra allowance per head due to him if he had to keep prisoners locally so you can imagine there would have been little incentive to process them quickly. If you reported you had one too sick to travel immediately, you could increase your income and have a leisurely stroll across to Derby. But this would prove to be a dangerous tactic. Richardson may have felt secure in his relationship with Jandamara, but it was clear now it was not a relationship of mutual understanding or respect. Richardson had been taking advantage of Jandamara's goodwill in other ways too. Pedersen writes, quote, Richardson was blind to the intense pressure Jandamara was under from the prisoners. Most were his blood relatives, or men he had known all his life. Under the late October sun, the scorching metal chains burnt their necks and shoulders. There was no relief. As the days wore on, their bitterness towards Jandamara increased. They goaded him about his Bonaba obligations and demanded he release them. Alamara's spellbinding influence came to bear. Possessing the authority to pardon him for his past sins, Alamara beckoned the young man home to his people and to their law, 
reminding him of the cattle now plodding toward Bunaba country. Only Jandamara could save them, unquote. And Peterson records that one final emotional weight was added to the scales. Lilamara, one of the black trackers who had helped other Bunaba prisoners escape from other police patrols earlier, absconding with the police weapons, was amongst Richardson's prisoners now. His younger sister, Mayani, had become Jandamara's wife, and in his culture, there were exceptionally strong mutual obligations between brothers-in-law. So Lilamara had great influence, and he began reflecting on Jandamara's honour. Richardson had slept with Mayani, and indeed had fathered a child, which Jandamara had adopted as his own, but Lilamara now needled him about the arrogance of the white man, the shame visited on Jandamara. This tack seems to have finally broken his resolve and to flip his loyalty back to his own people. With seven days to reflect, it seems Jandamara was becoming more conflicted, confused and anguished about the situation he found himself in, working at odds with the brutality between the two cultures. But once he had deliberated, deciding to return to his people, he seemed to have become completely focused. He would step up for his people, releasing Alamara and the others he would take the actions that were required to drive the invaders out of the country, returning his people to their rightful place. Any soldier defending their home soil will know that motivation. What happened next was shocking and pitiless, but it was in no way out of proportion considering the brutality and death that was daily being meted out to Jandamara's people and to those of neighbouring clans during the killing times particularly when you think of this action as being part of a guerrilla war. Late in the evening of October 31st, 1894, Jandamara released his people from the chains. Arming himself and his brother-in-law, Lilamara, they went into the building where Jandamara killed Richardson in his bed with a single rifle shot. Lilamara, possibly enduring more brutality from the police during his previous encounters, fired all the bullets from his revolver into the dead man, in what must have been a desire for punishment or revenge, one assumes. Collecting all the weapons and ammunition available, the freed prisoners gathered other relatives from the station, and 55 of them walked into the Mandilingan, Winjana Gorge. Richardson's assistant, Captain, seems to have willingly joined them in their departure, though he would later claim he was forced. The cattle were on their way to fill the Bonabalans, they must make a stand if their way of life was to survive. At the gorge they prepared to ambush the expected drovers arriving with the cattle. With Jandamara now leading this resistance group, probably with the blessing of Elamara, he considered how they could make best use of the weapons. The cattle drovers would have been aware of the murder of Richardson as they approached, but they expected the Bunaba, including Jandamara, would now be long gone, hiding deep in the Milawundi King Leopold range, fleeing from what they knew would be a swift police response. And so they were not overly concerned about continuing their cattle drive. In fact, they were so confident that they were not even armed when they reached Winjana Gorge. But the Bunaba men were in the rocky outcrops above the gorge and waterhole when the stockmen arrived, and in a rather shocking display of defiance and rebellion, Jandamara showed himself as his warriors fired on the stockmen below, killing and wounding several. The others retreated past the supply dray further back and off towards the nearest homestead. 
Jan Damara then approached the Aboriginal stockman who'd been left to guard the dray, and in what Peterson describes as an act of war, advised him they intended, quote, only to kill the whites, unquote. And he told him to pass on to all the station blacks to come and join them. Jan Damara took a horse and he rode after the escaping men, firing on them when he could, his pace so extreme that his horse broke down and collapsed and he had to return to the gorge on foot as the stockmen arrived at the homestead. Back at the gorge, they gathered the weapons and ammunition from the stock-droving cart and from the fallen men, Peterson noting the hall including two high-quality rifles, a double-barreled shotgun, four revolvers, 4,000 rounds of ammunition and 20 pounds of shot, along with further gunpowder and shot, and they began to prepare for the inevitable reprisal, which they knew must come soon, from the police at Derby. Though they had plenty of weapons now, only three men knew how to use them. So Jandamara set them to learning and practicing, firing into targets on the Boab trees around. The women, including Jandamara's mother, became key members of this outfit, making bullets and loading weapons, hunting, providing food, providing intelligence, and acting as scouts and decoys. But as Peterson writes, quote, he could not have anticipated the violent onslaught that his people would soon face. Settlers, long tormented by the image of the civilised Aborigine, returning to the wilds and leading an attack on them, had now seen that image become a reality. Those who had pressed for a more murderous military campaign against the Bunaba were handed a godsend. Let the government dare stop them now. Unquote. The more discreet and stealthy killings that have been taking place over the last few years could now be escalated and undertaken en masse with next to no oversight. Having black skin would now be excuse enough to draw fire. News of the murderous rebellion was soon right across the region by morning, and around 60 men gathered in Derby to consider what should be done. These men declared Jandamara, indeed all the Bonaba people living around the station areas, outlaws that should no longer have any protections from the Crown. They insisted, quote, bringing to justice three miserable blacks is not good enough in avenging the death of Richardson, Burke and Gibbs. The whole district should be prosecuted, unquote. Quote, the West Kimberley settlers were openly demanding the genocide of the Bunaba, unquote. The authorities feared more would rise up as Jandamara had. Gisane quotes a Bunaba man recalling his people's take on the matter, recalling the killing time. Quote, yeah, well, there was a massacre going on right throughout the Bunaba country, along the Fitzroy River, you know, and probably they were doing that just because settlers thought, we better do something now, otherwise we'll get more people like Jandamara. And I think more killing was going on because of what Jandamara was doing. And the Europeans was afraid and thought we may as well start wiping the Aboriginal people away because otherwise they will end up being like Jandamara. Unquote. And so any restraint they had shown before was removed. Peterson records that the Western Australian government did consider there was now a state of emergency in the Kimberley, recording, quote, Legal constraints on West Kimberley colonists would be temporarily abandoned. The Bunaba rebels would be crushed decisively, unquote. Quote, Derby settlers saw the uprising as a war declared, unquote. So began pretty much a last stand guerrilla war, led by Jandamara, that would unnerve the settlers and continue for three years. By the middle of November, in the build-up to the northern tropical rainy season, the police planned to approach the gorge from three points, expecting to be able to trap Jandamara there. But when they arrived, they found no one there. 
Instead, Jandamar had placed his men all around the limestone caves, above the gorge, hidden from the men below, sheltered from any shots that might be fired. Now the police party below were caught in their own trap, vulnerable to the hidden snipers around. But one third of the group, led by Jim Crow from the Leonard Creek Station, who'd actually been shown the area by Jandamari years earlier, brought his men in across the top behind the gorge, intending to enter from above. And as they began their climb down, they discovered some of Jandamara's men hidden there in the high caves and tunnels, and the exchange of fire began. With so much cover, it was difficult for any group to land a definitive blow, though those in the gorge were at greatest risk, being the most exposed. But the exchanges continued on and off until mid-afternoon. It was then that Elamara, visible when making his way to Jandamara, was shot in the back, which left him with a mortal wound. The wailing from the cave let the men know that they had killed Elamara. After a long and unproductive day, they were buoyed by this result, and they began preparing to fire again en masse at Jandamara's cave. Jandamara, however, came out, fierce and towering over them, with his rifles blazing. With his companions there reloading and handing him new weapons, the barrage was almost continuous. The exposed men below took shelter, and some fired back. Finally, a bullet hit Jandamara's shoulder, but he kept firing, retreating only after receiving two more serious wounds, one to the stomach and one to the chest, continuing fire from deeper in the cave. This was a devastating blow for the Bunaba. Alamara dead, and Jandamara seriously wounded, and two of the women in the party also shot and killed. But they gathered the weapons, and most were able to retreat into the labyrinth cave system, and out along the limestone ranges to disappear into the safety of their country. The police below surrounded the cave entrance, assuming that the rest of the defeated army would now come out and surrender. But in the end, only six women and three children finally emerged. Some men went up onto the plateau the following day, trying to hunt down Jandamara's warriors, and some shots were exchanged, but they could not beat the men in their own country and the only additional casualty was a poor young woman shot in the back when trying to hide. On the 19th, the party returned to the station to regroup. This was no successful route for the authorities. Though Drury's party had suffered no casualties, after three days hounding the Bunaba, they'd killed only Elamara and three women, captured a few women and children, and reclaimed only two of the many stolen weapons. The Bunaba were still defiant, still with a very handy stash of weapons and ammunition, and while they knew Jandamara was at least injured, his condition was unknown. Later, one of Drury's trackers, who could speak a little Bonaba, had got some information from a woman they'd captured, talking about a hasty funeral taking place in the limestone cliffs for a Bonaba big man, which they assumed was Jandamara, but which was probably Alamara. In fact, unknown to the police parties, Jandamara had been nursed through his wounds by his wife and mother within the labyrinth cave system around the gorge. When he was fit to travel, they moved on to the Barak complex, that's Tunnel Creek, about 20 miles south. With the entrances at either end well hidden, it was both a secure hiding place and an area with plentiful food accessible nearby. But Chandamara would have heard of the awful reprisal killings now occurring across the region as he recovered from his wounds in Tunnel Creek. The settlers and the government were alarmed. This rebellion must be thoroughly quashed if they were to be able to continue their expansion into the area safely. Inspector Lawrence from Roburn was sent in to finish the job, Pedersen recording Commissioner Phillips sending him the following instructions. Quote, 
The natives in the West Kimberley have broken into open hostility towards the whites, and the police there being too weak to cope with them. You are to proceed to Derby taking two constables, specials if necessary, and six good native trackers. Upon arrival, you are to assume control of the whole force and direction of the operations against the natives. In doing so, you must understand that the object of your mission is to free the district in a decisive manner and act promptly on the matter. Unquote. I think it's pretty clear what is being discreetly authorised here. The killing time would continue. Indeed, it would intensify. Massacres continued all through the region, with parties from every station and police outpost doing their bit. Peterson writes that in the following two and a half months, Lawrence's party covered over 1160 miles, coming across many groups of Aboriginals, and yet only formally recording killing 28. But other sources indicate much greater slaughter. Some of the oral history was recorded in 1979, with one old man resident on the Nooncambar station, southwest of Fitzroy Crossing, recalling, quote, They were shooting all along the river. We can show you any time, you know. Bones laying just like rubbish, right along. One would go one side of the river, and another policeman would go the other side. If the boys jumped over from the other side of the river, they got shot there, right along the Fitzroy. If he came out along a big mob of people, he just shoot straight in. He shot more people than we got living here. Unquote. And at the time of recording, there were 200 living at the station. It's an appalling story, and as uncomfortable as it is to recognise this part of our joint history, we just have to sit with it and consider what it must have been like. While Lawrence never openly admitted to the murderous massacres, he felt enough had been done to subdue the natives by the end of March 1895, and he packed it in and returned to Roburn. The newspapers reported his success, saying, quote, the blacks now rightly understand the mosaic law of a life for a life, unquote. Oh, their grasp of mathematics was clearly as incompetent as their lack of compassion for the loss of life. But there were those who could see what was happening. One paper did remind their readers to consider the motivations and desperation of Jandamara and those resisting the takeover of their lands. Quote, had the West Kimberley Aborigines been of a different colour, had they been of a different country, we of Western Australia would probably be inclined to regard them as heroes. They had laid down their lives to repel what they must have considered an unjust invasion." Unquote. Though the indiscriminate reprisals continued throughout the killing times, the pastoralists became aware that some Bunaba were again living back in their heartland and that Jandamara might still be alive and that concerned pastoralists enough to delay moving more cattle onto his land, for a period at least. This was a small victory for his people, and a clear acknowledgement that he was revered and feared. When recovered, Jandamara continued ambushing and driving out incomers. In an effort to discourage the ruthless reprisals, he did not kill or undertake violent acts, but rather took every opportunity to taunt and harass the settlers and police to frustrate and embarrass them. For example, returning to the police station where Richardson was killed, he raided their storehouse while the troopers slept inside. He deliberately dusted the floor with the flour that he was taking so that the Pilbara black trackers brought in could clearly identify his prints and report it certainly was Jandamara who had been there and he could have killed them if he'd chosen. So pleased with the Bunaba to have their hero flourishing, 
Those captured now gave false leads, sometimes prompting the police to prepare for fictional attacks or the stock stations to hide and bury their weapons in case they were overrun by an ambush. Anything that might frustrate and irritate the incomers, while elevating the fearsome legend of Jandamara, who could suddenly appear and disappear without any trace. It was nerve-wracking for the station managers too. Leonard River Homestead being close to Bunaba homeland, there was always a concern that the invincible Jandamara might strike at any time. For Lucan, the situation had become unbearable. In November of 1895, he left the Kimberley forever, migrating to America, where he died in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, would you believe? So that was a novel end for the testy station manager. The Bunaba may have felt good about being able to drive Lucan out at least, but of course they were never going to be able to hold back the tide in the face of such a determined, ruthless and state-backed land grab, and this small victory would have to serve in the face of eventual defeat. In October of 1895, the police had come across Jandamara's group, and at this time, Captain, probably surprised by the ambush and unable to escape with Jandamara, took the opportunity to surrender, claiming he had been forced to go with Jandamara on the night of Richardson's shooting, and had not willingly taken part in any uprising. How he had not been able to run away during the year that followed was a mystery, but apparently everyone let that slide for the moment. He might be useful to them. Jandamara, though, had escaped back into the wilderness, but his mother and wife were taken and chained up too. With his family now hostages, the police began negotiations, urging him to come down and surrender, promising the women would be safe and unharmed. In return, he insisted his mother must be released before he would come down to them. But when his mother was released, he refused to yield after all, and he saw his wife and Captain led away. Captain was tried and sentenced to death for his association with Richardson's murder, but his surrender and claim that he was forced to go with Jandamara, and as a stranger on the Bunaba country forced to stay with them to stay alive, he was granted clemency and was instead sentenced to life on Rottnest Island. But there's not much clemency in sending an Aboriginal man to Rottnest Island, where grief and disease took its toll amongst the inmates. Captain died there during a measles epidemic only a year or so later. Mayani, Jandamara's wife, like so many other Aboriginal women, was held as a witness until after the trial, and then she was assigned as indentured labour to a household in Roeburn. Sub-Inspector Ord came into Derby in 1896, leading raids right into Jandamara's stronghold. Twice Jandamara was surprised, having to bolt into the caves. On these occasions when the police retreated, he would sometimes follow them back to their huts or homestead, hurling rocks on the roof throughout the night to prevent them from sleeping or getting any anxiety-free rest. But soon afterwards, he returned again to his own country, leaving the police to nervously ponder his absence and inactivity over the coming months. As time passed, the police presence decreased and the settlers became more confident again, in late 1896, some were ready to push into Bonaba country again and settle back at the previously abandoned Leopold Downs station. Preparations were made to drive big mobs of cattle into the area. Police and vigilante groups again took the opportunity to kill and capture any natives they found to be on the land in their sights, and they prepared for the possibility that Jandamara may re-emerge. In early 1897, Following the murder of another white man bringing stock into the country by Wurunmura, a man who had previously been working as a police trooper, 
the hunt for Jandamara and any others sympathetic to him, including Wuranmura, was ramped up again. This time, they brought with them a tracker from the broom area, known as Mickey. Mickey seemed completely unconcerned about Jandamara's status, now recognised by his people as a clever man, a Jalanganguru. Mickey had his own clever man status, and his confidence had helped the police capture Jandamara's brother-in-law at Leonard River Station. But Jandamara must have anticipated the more difficult confrontations to come. The cattle were coming, and the pastoralists and police would no longer be held back. On March 27, 1897, a police party of five again followed Jandamara's tracks into a narrowing gorge, a site that had defensive opportunities above and all round, perfect for snipers. And Jandamara climbed into position, up in the limestone escarpment, just as the police reached the dead end. But this time, their tracker, Mickey, followed straight up after him, and shots rang out all around the gorge. Several of Jandamara's men were injured, and Mickey, focusing on Jandamara, was able to bring him to ground. Mickey's white commander, Blythe, insisted though that Mickey hold him so that he could have the glory of dispatching the famed Jandamara himself. Blythe, standing over the fallen Jandamara, aimed his gun, ready to fire. But in yet another legendary rally, Jandamara had the strength to turn and fire at exactly the same time. Quote, the noise of their guns fired simultaneously, resounding against the limestone cliff. Blythe's gun hand inadvertently shielded him from the possibility of a fatal shot to the head. The bullet struck his pistol, shattering his thumb and one of his fingers. Jandamara, hit in the groin, managed to propel himself into the long grass and disappear, leaving a trail of blood. Unquote. All assumed his substantial wound would mean the end of Jandamara, and they captured any Bunaba that they could round up in the area. The following dawn, though, as one of the party readied the horses for the ride back to Derby, the tenacious Jandamara fired a single shot, shooting that man dead and dispersing the frightened horses. The other men dived for cover. They formed their chained Bunaba prisoners into a circle, and they hid behind this human shield. They cautiously gathered the horses, but the prisoners slowed their awkward retreat, and the wounded and still bleeding Jandamara was able to shadow their withdrawal. On reaching the camp, the prisoners were dispatched to Derby, accompanied by one trusted black trooper. Some of the men waited for more reinforcements from Derby, but Blythe and his men headed straight back out, with Mickey tracking the injured and weakening Jandamara. Badly wounded, and probably realising the inevitability of the white man's cattle invasion being unstoppable, with few warriors left to resist and the supportive women captured, he would have been weighing his prospects. Still, he managed to survive and keep out of sight for the three days it took him to reach Burra, Tunnel Creek. His strength and tenacity truly was amazing. But with Mickey determined to hunt him down, his days were numbered, and the troopers were scouring the area. On April 1st, 1897, Jandamara gathered his rifle and bullets and headed back out, climbing the rocky pillars nearby to confront Mickey from above. Jandamara fired the first shot, missing Mickey, the bullet piercing the baob tree he was hiding behind. Mickey, also a superb shot, returned fire, and his bullet hit its mark. Jandamara staggered and fell from his limestone buttress to the ground 100 feet below. Their shots had brought the white troopers back, and they inspected Jandamara's body to confirm that he was dead. 
after so many years and frequent assertions that he was probably dead, they decided to remove his head and take it to Derby so their success could not be denied. And right there, the gruesome task was undertaken with a hatchet. And they rode back triumphant to Limalura with the head of the revered Bunaba warrior. In a further macabre action, they also exhumed Richardson's body there, in order to transport it to Derby for some reason, where his final resting place and grave memorial remains today. There was a great celebration in Derby in response to the death of Chandamara, the settlers knowing this would mark the final impediment to their access to the desired grazing lands. While Richardson was reburied with reverence and afforded a massive tombstone, Jandamara, who had fought a defensive war on his home ground over three years, a warrior trying to drive out the settlers and reclaim his country for his people, was afforded no such respect. Peterson records that Jandamara's head was removed to Perth, where, quote, so-called civilised people formed long queues and paid money to glimpse the skull of the notorious warrior. However, Perth people were tricked. The skull they saw was not that of Jandamara, but of Wiseko, Jandamara skull had been sent to England as a trophy for a famous arms manufacturer. Back on country, Jandamara's family returned to find his body. They placed the corpse in a boab tree, later wrapping it in paper bark and stowing it forever in a cave in the limestone cliff. Unquote. In mourning the loss of Jandamara, their last hope, they must also have known they were mourning the loss of their traditional way of life and their sacred country. Many of those early cattle stations remained operating into the 20th century and even today and were successful mainly because they had the cheap labour of the remaining indigenous families working them. In the 1960s, some of the spectacular places mentioned here were at least brought under the control of the national park system, salvaging some degraded areas from further damage by large numbers of stock. But opening up these sacred and important initiation sites to tourism has its own disadvantages. Many might visit without any idea of the trauma and loss experienced here, though in later years there were information boards for visitors, and they are encouraged to be respectful of the sites at all times. In 1968, when wage reform included the Aboriginal workers, many of the Bunaba people and other local groups were pushed off the stations into the towns like Fitzroy Crossing. In the 1990s, in a small ray of positivity, Bunaba people took back formal ownership of Leopold Downs and Fairfield stations, now renamed Yarangari and Ewa, both in the heart of ancient Bunaba country. And at last, while still running them as cattle stations for income, they had the chance to re-inhabit their lands and resurrect cultural practices that were suppressed and forbidden to them through the earlier 20th century. In June of 1992, the High Court overturned Terra Nullius. Recognising native title, the proposition that Cook claimed Australia on the basis it was vacant was rejected, the translation of Terra Nullius meaning land belonging to no one. The indigenous peoples across Terra Australis, over a 65,000 year time span, exclusively inhabited and owned the land, and the land owned them. The ruling said in part, quote, the acts and events by which that dispossession in legal theory was carried into practical effect constitute the darkest aspect of history of this nation. The nation as a whole must remain diminished unless and until there is an acknowledgement of and retreat from those injustices." Unquote. We find ourselves still working through the complex consequences of that today, 
coming to some understanding all too slowly. Even today, Jandamara's people continue to see him as a hero, a man who stepped up to lead his people in pushing back against dispossession and annihilation. He proudly fought for the Bunaba people and their country in the face of massive disruption and change. As Peterson concluded, quote, the legacy of Jandamara is the challenge for this nation to achieve the coexistence of indigenous peoples and those who have come to live on Aboriginal land, unquote. Acknowledging and understanding the past violence on the frontiers between the old and newer Australians is an important prerequisite to us finally being able to negotiate reasonable settlements together into the future. Now this month I'm going to recommend another Australian history podcast called the History Lab Podcast. The History Lab Podcast is a collaboration between the Australian Centre for Public History at the University of Technology, Sydney, and one of Sydney's largest community radio stations, 2SER. It's a high-quality production with lovely soundscapes, which looks at our stories through an investigative process and is a pleasure to listen to. The topics can sometimes seem obscure at first glance. Then the stories open up into a fascinating exploration of incidents from our past. I'll place the link to their landing page on mine at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Before I wrap up, I wanted to thank and welcome Pat and Cara to the Australian Histories Podcast patron family. Every little bit helps keep me afloat. If you enjoy the podcast, perhaps you could consider becoming a patron too. Thanks for joining me again this month. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.